so we're carrying on with the series in uh, Joshua the, on the theme of courage. And um, when we were kind of planning this series in the, in, we've got this little preaching planning group that a few of us are in uh, to kind of thrash through who's going to preach what and so on. I, um, everybody was kind of being allocated or volunteering to do all the juicy bits in Joshua. And um, I thought at the time, actually, I've got a handle on Joshua chapter 7. So I kind of went for it, and I stuck my paw up in the air and said, I'll do that, I'll be happy to do that, because actually I've got, I've got an idea in the back of my head about a part of the chapter that I really felt I wanted to sort of share about, and so they put me down for it. And then I started kind of going more deeply into the passage and actually ended up wondering why on earth I'd volunteered to preach on what proves to be one of the most challenging narrative accounts in the entire Bible. <laughs> and um, I'm still feeling like that now. <laughs> you fool, David. Why on earth did you volunteer to do this? Difficult is an understatement, okay? But as good Bible-believing Christians, we, we don't cherry-pick the Bible, okay? We don't just go for the nice bits. And yours truly, having a few grey hairs about him they quite happily let me take on board doing chapter 7 with a little bit of a snigger behind sort of hands like this when I volunteered for it. But there we go. We don't simply stick with the familiar and the safe. We preach the whole of Scripture over a period of time at least, not necessarily in one evening. Well, I may, you may feel later on that that is what I'm trying to do. <laughs> but we'll see. There are things in the Bible, even if you've been a Christian for a number of years, and I've been going around the block now since about 19, well, not about, since Easter 1973 was when I became a Christian, and that's too big a number now for me to even compute how many years ago that was. More than 40 anyway, a long time ago. I've been, so I've been a Christian for a little while, and uh, and yet, even after all of these decades of listening to sermons and reading the Bible, and Hazel will tell you she's fed up of the number of books I've got on, uh, on my shelves and so forth that I've been sort of reading down through the years. But all of those things have left some significant questions unanswered. And I guess probably you will, you know, if I've still got questions after 40 blah, years, you will, 40, how many is it? 45, is it? Blimey, I ought to have a birthday party this Easter then, really. Oh, it's a big one, or half a big one. Um, some of you are going to have some, some as well, aren't you, really? And, uh, and sometimes, if we've got questions, if you are on a journey, kind of trying to work out what it is you think about God and how you should respond to him and what you need to do about Jesus... Um, you're in a place where actually some of those questions can stop you going any further down the road. And if I want to, if I want to, I'm going to come to my main point even before I've got into my introduction tonight. And the main point is this: don't let the difficulties of passages like this one in the Old Testament don't let them uh, make you feel offended with God to the extent that you fail to see how much he has demonstrated his love for you in Jesus. Yeah? 
the overwhelming, never-ending. No, the overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God. Yeah? We've sung about it tonight. He's pursuing people in this room tonight. And he doesn't want you to be offended by a lack of understanding of who he is to the extent that you fail to respond to the overtures of love towards you that he is expressing. Yeah? And so I want to talk a little bit about this tonight. I'm going to summarise first of all. Uh, I'm not going to read the whole chapter. It's quite a long chapter, really. But I just want to summarise it and read some verses from it. But we're after Jericho. Um, and it's been a magnificent and a resounding victory for God's people. Uh, and all that was plundered from the city of Jericho was to, be, was to have been given over to God. And yet, one man in the Israeli company kept some of the spoil, some of the treasure for himself and secretly buried it in the floor of his tent, hoping that nobody would see what he had done. And that man was Achan, and uh, he features in quite a significant way in what follows. And then we come across the next stage in the occupation of the land, and we read this from verse 2 down to verse 5. Now Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, that's the next place that they're going to, to take, which is near Beth-Avon, to the east of Bethel, and told them, go up and spy out the region. So the men went up and spied out Ai. And when they returned to Joshua, they said, not all the army will have to go up against Ai. Send two or 3,000 men to take it, and do not weary the whole army. For only a few people live there. This, this sounds like an Eddie Jones kind of talk to the England rugby team, doesn't it? <laughs> so about 3,000 3, went up, but they were routed. That was a rather good joke, wasn't it, actually? <laughs> God, dear. Get, hey, I'll write that, write that. Can you write that one down for me so I don't forget it? Yeah. So about 3,000 went up. But they were routed by the men of Ai, who killed about 36 of them. They chased the Israelites from the city, from the city gate, as far as the stone quarries, and struck them down on the slopes. And at this, the hearts of the people melted in fear and became like water. The result of this is that Joshua is distraught, and he falls to the ground before God in his anguish. And then we read verse 10 the next few verses. And the Lord said to Joshua, stand up, what are you doing down on your face? Israel has sinned. They've violated my covenants, which I commanded them to keep. They've taken some of the devoted things, they've stolen, they've lied, and they have put them with their own possessions. That is why the Israelites cannot stand against their enemies. They turn their backs and run because they have been made liable to destruction. I will not be with you anymore unless you destroy whatever among you is devoted to destruction. Go consecrate the people. Tell them, consecrate yourselves in preparation for tomorrow. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. 
There are devoted things among you, Israel. You cannot stand against your enemies until you remove them. And then in the verses that follow, we read how Achan is identified and called upon to glorify God by telling the truth. And his fate for seriously disobeying God is that he and his entire family lose their lives. They all pay the penalty for Achan's sin. Now, what can cause us problems? What, can, what we can get offended by here in this passage is how we handle the issue of the fate of Achan and his entire family. Yeah? And actually, in the next chapter, the same goes for what happens to the Canaanites, really, after Ai is finally overthrown. Uh, I've, been, I've been wrestling with these questions more than a little in the last few weeks. But, and what I want to do now is just to unpack a few principles that I think actually it's useful for us to try and bear in mind when we hit passages like this so that we don't get offended by them and so that we can kind of keep them in, in, in a place where they don't, they don't cause us uh, issue in the, in the way that they can. Okay, so... There are five things that I want to share. And the first one is, I suppose, quite an obvious one. And, uh, and it's this. Now, when I, when I first became a Christian, I went out and I bought a Bible. And I thought, I'm going to read now the Word of God. And I started in Genesis and started working my way through. Not a good idea. <laughs> All right. So if, you, if that's where you are at, really, I, I would suggest... Don't start with the Old Testament because you will hit issues. You will have questions. Start with the New Testament. I'll unpack a little bit. I'll try and unpack a little bit why uh, as we go through with this. I always say to people who are kind of exploring faith that the best place to start is actually towards the end of the book and to start by reading, say, the Gospel of Mark, which is probably the most straightforward account of the life of Jesus. Maybe after you've read Mark, have a go at reading the Gospel of Luke, which is, if you like, the most compassionate of the Gospels. And then maybe have a look at the Gospel of John, which is where things begin to get a little bit more theological before you ever get familiar with what the Bible says about Jesus before ever you try to tackle, particularly the narratives in the Old Testament. Once you've got to grips with Jesus, then move on. I'm indebted to my friend Paul, Paul Crutch, Crutchley, for showing me the following quotation, which I think is relevant in this context. And I think hopefully this quotation will come up behind me. And it's a quotation from uh, Tim Keller from his book on preaching. And he says this, My friend and Old Testament professor, Tremper Longman, once told me that reading the Bible is somewhat like watching the movie The Sixth Sense. That movie has a startling ending that forces you to go back and reinterpret everything you saw before. The second time through, you can't not think of the ending as you watch the beginning and the middle of the movie. The ending sheds unignorable light on everything that went before. And in the same way, once you know how all the lines of all the stories and all the climaxes of all the themes converge on Christ, 
You simply cannot see that every text is, um, is ultimately about Jesus. I think that should say you simply cannot but see. I think there's a word missing there. You simply cannot but see that every text is ultimately about Jesus. We understand the Old Testament and some of the difficulties that it has in the light of the New Testament, not the other way around. When we read the Old Testament after responding to the good news of Jesus and come to a place of trust in him, then what he has done for us comes to appear even more wonderful. So that's my first principle. And then the second one is this principle of the goodness of God. What I'm about to say now is in the next couple of sections, next three or four, actually all of the rest of these points, I guess really this is partly kind of what I have been struggling with because as I've thought about this, what, I, what has happened with me is that I have come face to face with a little bit more of a degree of the reality of who God is than I had, have had, than I have done for quite some time. And when you stop and consider God in all the reality of what he is like, you need to be overwhelmed because he is, the reality of who God is, is overwhelming. If we're not overwhelmed by the sense of who God is, we're not really in a place where we are fully contemplating him. And uh, it's in the context of this passage that I suppose I've been thinking about God and I've been, to a significant degree, overwhelmed by the glimpses of his reality that I've seen. And the, so the second thing that I wanted to talk, mention briefly, the second principle that we need to bear in mind when we're reading difficult scriptures like chapter 7 of, of Joshua is the goodness of God, the goodness of God. It's the sense of the goodness of God that guards us against getting offended. Now, Richard Dawkins, a name that I hope, well, you probably are all familiar with, is one person who has become deeply offended, particularly by the book of Joshua and, uh, and by the issue of what happens to Achan, but also what happens to the Canaanites in the next chapter. He's actually repeating um, a mistake that has been running through as a temptation all of church history because there was a guy called Marcion, even in the second century, who struggled so much with some of what he read about God in the Old Testament that he thought that the God who was described in the Old Testament and the God who is described in the New Testament cannot possibly be the same, the same being. Yeah? Yeah? And this is essentially what Richard Dawkins is kind of, he's falling into that trap. Not understanding why it is that things happen the way that they do and what do they say about God. Now there's a dear old lady who um, was a member of a church that Hazel and I used to lead in Lowestoft some years ago now. Oh, crumbs, 20 years ago and more now. Um, and uh, Joan, Joan Gowing. A wonderful, lovely lady and a real woman of prayer, a real intercessor. And um, she would often share with me that she actually had issues and questions about God and about the Bible. 
And she would often quote the Old Testament itself when she was talking to me about these things or when I kind of made a point uh, and so on. And she quoted Genesis 18.25. And again, I think this one will come up on the screen. And she would say, and I can hear her saying this now because she said it to me on more than one occasion. She would quote this, Shall not the God of all the earth do what is right? In other words, the nature of God, and we'll talk a bit more about this, the nature of God is such that it is impossible for God to do anything other than what is right in any situation. It's just that our human understanding often cannot get we, our capacity to understand the full picture of what is going on. Is, it, it, our capacity is not big enough to, to, to comprehend um, the nature of what is right and what is wrong in any one situation. Only God is, has got that degree of understanding that enables him to do what is right uh, in the world and in, in the human realm. And that's a phrase, shall not the God of all the earth do what is right, from the passage where Abraham is pleading with God to spare the lives of his people who are in the godless city of Sodom, which is about to be destroyed. Yeah? A prayer, by the way, which God heeds and answers in an affirmative way. And the Bible itself encourages us with this truth. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Psalm 34, verse 8, that is. You see, my point of view, I I came, I've come to... I guess some years ago now, really. I refuse to get offended about a God who loves me enough to send his son to die for me in order to rescue me, though my lifestyle was one that at one time utterly and completely dishonoured and disregarded him. Yeah? How can I be offended about a God who loves me and loved me even the way that I was and sometimes still can be. Yeah? That's the thing that ought to stop us, really, the goodness of God. And then the next point is to do with the holiness of God. I think sometimes in modern-day church, if you like, we've got an amazing sense of the fatherhood of God, the love of God, the way that he is for us and so forth. It ha it's become the theme of, of this uh, generation of the church to kind of get, a, a, an, and in a right way, and I'm not, I'm not in any way knocking this, because it's a, it's a very, very important value that we have to get hold of, this sense of God being for us. But the danger is that if we focus exclusively on that sense of the love of God, we, lose, we run the risk of losing the sense of the greatness and the holiness of God. And the two have got to be held together. The absolute otherness of God, who dwells in unapproachable light, he, it says in 1 Timothy 6, 16, has tended to become less familiar to us in recent times as we've grown in our understanding of the love of God as Father, and as we've drawn closer to him is in, in intimacy. But he is still 
the Holy One, the one who dwells in unapproachable light, it says in the Bible. There's just one story that I'm going to pick out very quickly, thumbnail sketch, just to, as an illustration to this. God is the... God, we're going to come on to this in a minute, the love of God, God wants us to experience his love. But the problem with the Old Testament time before Jesus has done what is necessary to deal with sin is that there is danger in coming into the presence of God because of that sin, which can cause us to actually be overwhelmed by God in his absolute and unapproachable holiness. Yeah? It's this... It's this that makes what Jesus has done on the cross in dealing with the sin which creates that situation such an amazing thing. Do you know the story of Elijah who once said to God, God, let me see your glory. Let me see your glory. He was hungry to know more of God. And God didn't appear to him in all the fullness of his majesty. But he did take Elijah and he hid him in a crack in the mountainside. And, uh, and probably facing towards the rock, in all honesty. And then God passed by where he was. And just his back, if you like, God turned away from Elijah as he walked past him. And, and Elijah got this sense of the glory of God as God passed by. But he could only catch a brief glimpse of God's back as he did so. Were he to see the full glory of God and the full presence of God, he would not have survived. Such is the amazing holiness of God. And the corollary of this as well is this, is that the idea of sin is something which has become incredibly unfashionable in our modern society. When was the last time you heard anybody in the world as a whole use the word sin even? It's a word that is falling right out of our vocabulary in, in, in general sense. Yeah? But that doesn't mean to say that we can overlook it or forget about it just because it's becoming outmoded in society. And what is sin? What is sin? It's not having regard for the holiness of the one who created us and made us. It's disregarding God. It's living life my way instead of in the way that he intends us to live. It's living as if I know better than the one who made me. And at the end of the day, that is what led Adam and Eve to sin in the garden, is submitting to the temptation of the evil one who suggested, has not God said? What causing them to doubt the holiness of God? And the result of that is that sin came in and spoiled everything, including the relationship that man had with God. Man got separated from God, and Romans 3.23, it says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Every single one of us, even those who live a life that would seem to us good in a lot of ways in the heart attitude of all of us, is a rebellion which makes us want to do things our way. And that is offensive to God who made us. Sin separates us from God. It leaves us outside of the covering of his protection, which is why they lost the battle of Ai, and vulnerable to the consequences of sin. And ultimately, the Bible says the wages of sin 
is death. Be that a spiritual deadness that is inside us, a sense of emptiness, a deep-seated feeling that something vital is missing from our lives, or even a literal physical death in the extreme form of that. How many of us sometimes, how many of us that has been our experience? I'm going to share a little bit about my story later on because that describes me before I gave my life to, to Jesus, really, and before he came in and dealt with the sin that separated me from God. The holiness of God is in this chapter 7 and in much of the Old Testament narrative. It's the holiness of God that is to the forefront. And then the love of God. You see, in spite of his holiness, God longs to know us and for us to know him. He desires to be with us and to bless us as his people. It's reflected in the way that he so sets things up in the Old Testament that even though sin isn't yet fully dealt with because Jesus has not yet gone to the cross to die and pay the penalty for sin, God sets things up so that fallen man can still live in a place alongside him or with him. That's why the tabernacle and the temple and the system of sacrifices and washings and all the regulations that you can read about in Leviticus and Deuteronomy were put in place so that God could, in spite of a sinful people, dwell in the midst of, in the midst of them. It's an expression of his love. But... And we see that in operation right through the Old Testament. And the Old Testament, all that God has done in the Old Testament to, to allow people to live with him in their midst is like God setting up a bridgehead and preparing the ground so that Jesus could come in the fullness of time fully and completely and totally to deal with sin and take it out of the way. And that brings us to the centrality of the cross, doesn't it really? If the Old Testament reveals the otherness of God, the New Testament is how we can become united finally with God through Jesus himself taking the punishment for our sin, which we deserve fully, so that we can go completely free. Romans 6, 23, and I think we've got this verse just to complete and give you the whole of a verse that I quoted just part of earlier on, says this, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus, our Lord. That but is magnificent. It is one of the most magnificent buts, if you'll pardon the expression, in the whole of the Bible. <laughs> you see, the New Testament demonstrates how the sacrifice of the Holy One, Jesus, the perfect sacrifice, finally, in the fullness of time, pays the penalty for all human sin and makes the full and unhindered expression of God's love for forgiven human beings possible, which is why when we read the Old Testament, we have this overwhelming sense of the love of God. The love of God is, is what is foremost in the New Testament, where it's the holiness of God that is to the fore in the, in the, in the old, before Jesus has gone to the cross. Yeah? Yeah? And the prophet Hosea spoke of the very place where Achan, I'm not sure that I've mentioned this, I probably should have done, but the place where Achan was put to death with all of his family 
as a result of disobeying God and holding back some of the treasure that belonged to God that was captured from Jericho. That place was called that place was called Achor, the Valley of Achor. And uh, the prophets in the Old Testament begin to look forward to a time when there's a fuller expression of the love and the mercy of God that comes, and they have a dim sense of one that they refer to as the Messiah who's going to come to bring people out of slavery to sin and into, and into freedom. And uh, the prophet Hosea spoke of the valley of Achor, the very place where Achan was put to death, becoming a doorway of hope, a place, a way through to a place of blessing and life. The doorway of hope would be found even in the place of execution, an extraordinary prophecy, because he was speaking of God dealing with sin once and for all, of Jesus coming and taking the punishment for all sin so that the holiness of God would not be compromised by human sin. And we know that the place where Jesus died on the cross was Golgotha, which was a place of execution. It was the equivalent of the place where Achan lost his life, even though he had done no wrong. And by so doing, he opened up a gateway to heaven for those who had confessed their sin and ask him to come in and deal with it. There's a hymn that we used to sing a lot years ago. It's rarely sung uh, these days, except possibly in some more traditional churches, I suppose. There is a green hill far away outside a city wall. It's a hymn that was originally written for children. But I tell you, it's moved me as an adult. When I first became a Christian, it moved me to tears singing this hymn. And there's two lines in it I just want to quote. And it's this. There was no other good enough to pay the price of sin. He only could unlock the gates of heaven and let us in. There's only one way that you can know God, and that's through Jesus dying for sin. He only could unlock the gate. The valley of Achor, a gateway of hope. I'm just going to finish with a short personal story about how I actually took that step myself. 1970, as a student, I was into everything that was kind of part of student culture in those days. Um, I was, uh, well, I'm not going to go into all the things that I was into, but I was into pretty much most of it, really. In the early 70s, in the early 70s as well, uh, students who were a little bit different from students today, we were a radical bunch when it came to radical politics. It's hard to believe now, but I was a raving Marxist, long-haired hippie. (laughs) If you can imagine what that might look like. I've got some pictures I could have shown you, but I thought, actually, they would have been X-rated, so... um, I might not have got away with showing them to a tender young audience like yourselves. (laughs) But there was a political sit-in. We occupied part of the uh, university administration building for a period of two weeks and lived off fried egg sandwiches and tomato soup for the whole of that time. I went home to my digs and got a change of clothes on one occasion during that fortnight. That doesn't bear thinking about. (laughs) But... 
So we were in this sitting, passing uh, votes of comfort, votes of support for the Bolivian tin miners who were on strike at that time, and you know, voting this and voting that, and and all the rest of it, and all these big political speeches, and how the administration of the university was corrupt and had secret files on all of us and all the rest of it. And then one night, just as we were kind of getting into our sleeping bags on the, uh, on the, um, at the benches of the lecture theatre that we were kind of, was the, was the heart of the, uh, the sit-in, a figure came in through the door. This was about kind of 11 o'clock at night. And it was, I, I recognised who it was straight away. It was, some, it was a young guy from the Christian Union. And he came into that place. And I tell you what, he was, he stood out like a sore thumb. You know, he was, he was a very conservative evangelical Christian. And he wore a tweed jacket and a collar and tie. And he had neatly brushed hair and his face kind of glowed. I mean, Seriously. And he came into this sitting full of Marxists and Trotskyites and all sorts of otherites. It's a bit like the Canaanites, really. He came into the middle of us and he went round one after another and he sought to talk to each one that he came to about Jesus. And he had tracts and he would give people tracts. And he was sharing with people about the love of God that was there for them. There's a different way from the one that you're pursuing, he would say. I tell you what, I didn't listen to him for a second. I told him in no uncertain terms where he could go and what he could do with his tracts. Yeah, I'm ashamed to think about it afterwards. But I tell you what, he never got a chance to say a dicky bird to me. But the very fact that he was in that room, I never, ever forgot. And I can still, umpteen, I don't know, nearly 50 years later now, I can still see his face. Yeah. Over the next few years, my life got into a total mess. And I started reading the Bible again, prompted by the vision, the picture of this guy in my mind, who dared, who had the courage, the thematic word, to come into that place and share the love of God with people. And a short while after I graduated, there was a point where I recognised that Jesus was pursuing me. And that I needed to do something about it. And I can remember kneeling on the floor in my room. Nobody else was there. And praying simply and saying, Jesus, I know you're real. I know you love me. I know I've messed up big time. I know I've hurt an awful lot of people. Will you please forgive me? And will you come into my life? And will you live in me? And that was it. Simple as that. No more complicated than that. I went to bed. I got up the next morning. And I knew, but I knew, but I knew that something extraordinary had happened overnight as a result of that prayer. And I felt, I felt, I felt like I glowed from the inside out. I gave up smoking 40 cigarettes a day on the spot. That's hard to believe, isn't it? I gave up drugs. There you are. I've, I've confessed one of the things that I was into. There's a lot of things that I gave up. I gave up some friends. There were, friend, there were friends I had at university who never spoke to me from that moment on. But God had come in because God had pursued me and because I'd had the courage to take the step as a result of a courage of a student who came in to share the message of the gospel of the love of God 
and pointed me to the doorway that was in the Valley of Achor. My Valley of Achor was everything that I had ever done wrong that I felt condemned and guilty about. And Jesus had died in that place for me. I'm, I'm going to stop now because I've had signals from the front about five minutes ago. <laughs> but I'm going to finish with this. I think, I think, I think God's on God's onto something. He wants to do something tonight. And I think this word courage is key. This word courage is key. I think for those of you who are believers and Christians, there's a challenge tonight to be courageous in the way that you share what you know of Jesus with the people that you meet in the same way that that student did who made such, even though he didn't speak to me, made such a difference in my life. There's a need for us to be courageous in sharing the gospel. But the other thing is this. There's people in this room tonight, at least one person, if not more. And you need to take the courage. You need to take your courage in both hands and take the step of saying to Jesus, Jesus, will you count me in? Will you forgive me? I know that you're on my case. I know I've offended you. I no longer want to be offended by you. I want you in, to invite you into my life so that you can forgive me and give me a fresh start of living my life for you in fellowship with God, the Father who loves me and gave you so that I gave you me so that I might know him and have fellowship with him for all eternity. Let's just stand.